following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Strap in, movie fans. We're about to take you 30 years into the past to explore the biggest blockbuster hits of the 1990s. I'm Pete. And I'm Michael. And And this this is is Box Box Office Office 30. 30. Welcome to Box Office 30. I am Pete, and as usual, I'm joined by my good buddy and co-host, Michael. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, sir. How are you? I'm you know- good. I'm really excited for this uh, this episode, uh, our review of My Cousin Vinny. Uh, <laughs> like, I, I feel like we've had some some decent movies lately, but I was actually really, really excited to, to re-watch this one. So... When I told my family that we were doing My Cousin Vinny this month, they're like, ooh, we want to watch it too. Let's all do like a movie night. (laughs) So I learned something really quickly when doing a movie night with your family. Like my wife was watching it. My in-laws were sitting down on the couch. And what I learned is people don't understand that when a movie is on, we don't don't talk during the movie, especially when I'm trying to pay attention for a podcast. Yeah. You know, who's talking about what happened at work this week? Who's talking about grocery shopping? Oh, see, that sucks. I mean, like, there's like a couple different versions. You know, like, I think on, on my family's end of things, whenever I show my parents a movie, and I guess I should really more say this is to do with my mom necessarily than my my dad. She's like the person of like a thousand questions. So, like, anytime I would sit and be like, Hey, you know, watch whatever, you know, whatever with me. And it would be like, oh, so so what's going to happen with this one? And and how is that going to try? And I'm like, just watch the movie. Just watch the movie. And the weird thing is I think there must be like a genetic predisposition for this because it jumped down a generation to my daughter, Zoe. And when I'm watching a movie with her, she'll be like, what's going to happen to da da And I'm like, just watch the movie. <laughs> You're going to find out. See what happens. Yeah. And I was like, oh, you know, who's like, oh, you know, who wants popcorn? I'm like – we should have made this before the movie started. Yeah. Popcorn is popping. People are yammering away. Who's texting? Who's on, I'm like, you know, who got a phone call? I'm like, we're watching a movie. It's I'm trying to pay attention. You know, See, like, I get real passive aggressive with that sort of thing. Like if I'm watching a movie with a group of friends or like family or something like that, and it gets to that sort of thing where people are like chatting about how their day was or something like that. And like they're do, not like do you, even do you into do the, the film. Do you do the move that I do? I just pause the damn yeah. thing. Yeah. And I just sit there with like a like a resting <laughs> face. <laughs> with, with what I call the eyes of judgment. Like, all yeah. right. Are we ready to move on, please? Yeah. <laughs> Let's go. So, yeah. 
That was the first and last time that I'll volunteer. Let's all watch the movie together. It'll be great. Nice. You know, who's making drinks for themselves? I'm like, oh, man. But anyway, <laughs> that being said, I, I too was very excited to watch this movie because there's so many things that I forgot about this movie. Yeah. That when I rewatched it, I was like, wow, that happened? This happened this early? And, and like all these different things. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm pumped to talk about it. No, same exact thing. Um, I I knew I liked this movie. I, I've seen this movie a bunch of times, um, but not having seen it in in some number of years now, like it's like welcoming back an old friend. It's it's yeah. always such a fun thing to to go through. And again, you and I were just saying this right before we started um, the show. It, I forgot that it was a two hour long yeah. movie, and when you really break it down, it's like mostly about the court case. You know, there's other stuff going on, like, you know, with Vinny and, and Mona Lisa and, and the two guys, like, outside of, um, you know, the case or whatever. But a lot of this movie is a court case. Yeah, and the, lo- the lion's share of it is in the courtroom, yeah. Even with that being the case, it still stays watchable and light. And, like, you're not like, oh, this is, like, just some boring, like, you know, clerical, you know, sort of thing. So... I I was really, really enjoying it. Um, And again, I think a lot of the credit for that, um, I mentioned him last week, has to go to Dale Lawner, who's the the writer of this. I think it's a really, really well-written screenplay. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, And there's some funny characters and and everything. There's some funny things that I found out doing my normal bit of research that were like little changes here and there. Um, some for the better, some for the worse, you know, things that either the studio wanted changed or just things that came up kind of naturally that they added in. Um, but end of the day, I think it still, um, works really, really well. Um, so it was my month for notes and I have notes. So, so let's dive in on this thing and we'll dissect it as, as we go. Thank goodness. So, I took no notes. Yes. <laughs> so we open with a car driving montage, uh, which is, I guess, not terribly surprising. We've kind of had a few, um, movies that we've reviewed now over the course of, of this podcast that have opened a lot in the same way. So this was yeah. definitely a, a thing in at least the early nineties, if not just in filmmaking in general, um, and one of my immediate impressions was, man, Ralph Macchio's kind of funny looking with this weird little creepy half mustache thing that he has going here. Now, this opened up a question for me that I had to answer. And I'm going to throw it to you to get your opinion. How old do you think Ralph Macchio is character? Well, I mean, obviously, character wise, college age, but like in real life, wh- where do you think he's at at this t- time? So character age, I think he's probably around 21 22 because he mentions about going from i guess nyu to ucla so yeah they got a, a scholarship so they're they're changing schools essentially yeah, so, so let, let's say they're probably around 20 which like by the way like to be like an nyu student and then like get a scholarship to ucla i mean like these must be too bright <laughs> yeah and <laughs> God, like, like, that's, that's quite impressive yeah. um so, but but i digress if, if i had if i had to venture a guess and this is almost an unfair guess because of the fact that fast forward 30 years later cobra kai i'm going to say he's probably 25 to 27 he's 30 years old in this part really yes and around 32 or 33 by by, i think 32 by the time the film's out something like that 
or like uh, maybe maybe I'm I'm fudging that a little bit, but he's 30 years old uh, in this role, and I I couldn't get over that, like because I'm looking at him and I'm like, God, he looks he's got like that kind of like you know, teenage, weird, awkward sort of years, like mustache sort of thing going. It almost feels like he did the mustache. Like, it feels like the mustache is almost there to like say, hey, look, I'm not Daniel LaRusso. Yeah, exactly. I'm older than that now. But then you have to put into context when that movie came around, right? Because like, that's what I would, like, again, forgetting things like Cobra Kai, and he's been in some other things, but most people are going to remember him from Karate Kid, and my cousin Vinny in that order, presumably. Yeah. When he was in um, Karate Kid, he was 21 years old in real life. So, again, like the age that you would presume he would be around in this film, which happens many years after Karate Kid, is, is you know, I, so I started piecing it together in my head. I'm like, oh, my God, because, like, he just looks like so, so much younger. And it's good because, you know, like you want somebody to be playing – a part yeah, that, that yeah. looks like that younger role, but I, I was just very shocked by that. That's funny. Um, so uh, I had another uh, sort of thing that I wanted to bring up too while we're on this this point of this road trip that they're taking, because you mentioned uh, in last episode, like it seems like a weird spot to be in Alabama if you're traveling from New York to you know to California. Um, and so me being me, I started Google mapping. <laughs> well, they even pay reference to it in the movie why they went this way. Oh, do they? All yeah. right, maybe I missed it. So what did they say the reason was? So I, I think it was when they were in the police precinct. They say, you know, we're on our way out to California, but we wanted to see the country. We wanted to come down south and go a different way to see the world we may never see again. So here's the weird thing. And again, roads change and whatnot over yeah. time. But I Google mapped it and it gave me three different routes to get from literally NYU to None UCLA. of them go through Alabama. <laughs> None of them do, although the, there is one of the ones that's considered to be one of the faster ones is north of Alabama, uh, still a fair bit north. Um, but I did add in Alabama as a stop on the trip, and it didn't add a surprising amount of time. Now, that being said, it's coming up with some wacky thing where like it's saying like you could do the trip in like a day and 17 hours or something like that, <laughs> which seems, you know, unrealistic given real world circumstances or whatever. But um, I'm presuming that that means like if you like kept up an average 65 all the way from from point A to point B or and something never like stopped that. for gas, just had yeah, infinite or gas sleep or any of those <laughs> sort of things. Yes. Um, but uh, yes, I don't know. It just seemed like a weird thing that they were traveling down there. Now, that said, um I read that Dale Lawner actually like took a trip into like Georgia and Alabama and like some of those Southern states himself to like essentially do research, like mm -hmm. while he was coming up with the idea for this film. So it, it just seems like he liked the area and, mm -hmm. and wanted to set it in that area is probably basically the ultimate answer. Anyway, uh, the boys make a stop on their trip to pick up some food. They stop at this little um, uh, gas station and they, um, buy some stuff and they realize as they're driving that they accidentally stole a can of tuna from the shop. And like, no sooner do they mention this, than of course a cop shows up behind them 
um, and uh, the buddy, which I keep – the problem is I keep forgetting their two names because you're so focused in on Vinny and Mona Lisa throughout the movie. I keep like uh, – let's see. It's uh, Bill and Stan. You also feel like they're going to have like more interesting names. but Yeah, like they're – Bill and Stan. <laughs> honestly, their names are so irrelevant to the movie because they barely ever use them. Really, the two characters are almost irrelevant to the movie. Like most of the movie is them kind of just like sitting at the table and, and Vinny and them doing the rest. But – um, you know, you have to get them in there to set up where the rest of it's going. But um, anyway, uh, so, so like they, the cop pulls them over and ultimately there's like a series of clips uh, that, that kind of we start going through where they're in a lineup. I thought the lineup was kind of bizarre, um, particularly when you consider that both of them were in the lineup at the same time, which is unusual. And then uh, in addition to that, that like none of the people really resembled <laughs> them in the lineup which maybe that's part of the sight gag i don't know um but it did seem like a little bit of like a funny thing but ultimately they end up uh with the the cop interviewing them and there's a very clear misunderstanding happening here where he thinks he's confessing to stealing the can of tuna whereas the cop thinks he's confessing to murdering the gas station attendant um and really by the way we never see it on screen we never see any of that happen we never even see the other guys pull up like all that stuff is not there like you're to assume that it happened moments after they left well like, it, yeah and it does i mean like if you start going by the time scale that's ultimately established later with the witness testimony and things like that um you come to realize that it did happen all within a very short period of time so lots of coincidental sort of things in the beginning of this movie and the other thing i would say is lots of misunderstandings Yes. About things, particularly like the, in the early part of this film, most of the humor comes from like miscommunications. Yeah. yeah. So they finally realize they're being held for murder. It takes them a little bit to kind of uh, figure this out. Um, but they get their their one call. He calls his mom um, and she recommends um, Vinny who shows up. Now, fun fact about the film, which funny enough for me, I kind of never questioned this. But one of the things that um, Dale Lawner, the screenwriter, and Jonathan Lynn, the director, were sort of trying to figure out with this film is they're like, it seems really odd that your son would be on on like murder trial and you wouldn't be there. Never showed up. Right, <laughs> that bothered me. I'm like, like no one from their family came. Either family, the, yeah. The one guy, so, like. Why there, was is that? A, there was a subplot where Bill's mother faced with the news of her son having um, been put on, you know, in court for murder charges, basically had like a heart attack. So that was going to be their way of sort of being like why she wasn't there. But then like once they I think they either said they did shoot it or they were like in final script review and they're like, we don't need this. Let's just get rid of it. So that's why ultimately none of their, the rest of their family shows up. I, it, it didn't really occur to me hundred percent, to be honest, I guess maybe like it was one of these sort of things where it's like, Oh, your cousin's Vinny's there. He'll take care of you. So like, you know, call it, it a day. It occurred to me when I was watching the movie last night, but prior to rewatching it, I never thought twice about it. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, it would have been really funny if they had like this entire Italian family scene. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, almost like a who's on first sort of situation would have been funny, but I think it would have, the movie's already, like you said, two hours long to add more to it. Just for Yeah. And I think it would have detracted from kind of the main core for, and sort yeah. of the way that the Southern, you know, I think another kind of neat thing as far as portrayals go in this film, 
is there's certainly stereotypes and, and things like that, both on like the Italian Brooklyn side of things, mm-hmm. as well as the Southerner side of things. But I have to say, unlike a lot of other movies, and we've even seen this in some of the other ones we've watched, you know, uh, especially something like Doc Hollywood, let's say, the town isn't portrayed as all just like idiot bumpkins. Right. You know, like like the the, the um, judge is the very DA, the judge, the sheriff. They're all played as like up and up, just like people that want to do their job and, and treat it properly. Yeah. It's not like the evil DA who's out to get them. Yeah. It's not like the, the miserable judge who's going to send them up the river no matter what. It's not like, you know, like the dumb bumbling town sheriff, like it's all like really portrayed really well. So I, I actually really um, appreciated that fact because I feel like yeah, it, they're it not was a little country bit more genuine for it, you know? you know. And and even other than there's you know there's a whole pl- subplot of the hotel situation. <laughs> we only see one hotel manager who's you know the bumbling Southern guy, but we're not I mean, having there's definitely some like dopey people throughout this film, you know, like obviously but, but some of the guys minor. in the pool bar and things like that later, but we'll get to them as we get to them, I guess. Um, so anyway, Vinny rolls into town, Vinny and Mona Lisa come rolling in, in their car. Um, and everybody in the town is kind of giving them sidelong glances, um, especially because the outfits that the two of them wear throughout this film are just like, Oh, you <laughs> blend. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> Um, now it's probably worth stopping and, and just mentioning so we don't have to keep repeating it ad hoc. Um, Marissa Tomei is amazing in this role. And again, I knew I remembered liking her in this, but she has such great chemistry with Joe Pesci. She has so many great little one-liners that pop out. She's really like a really good foil to him. The two of them have this kind of fun chemistry where they sort of like you can tell they're like head over heels for each other, but they're also like at each other's throats constantly about stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's it, the, again, I think that one of the if I had to like sum this movie up in in like one word, it'd be the word genuine. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not only like the way that I feel like a lot of the characters act towards each other. It's not only how the things are portrayed. It's not only how the law and stuff is portrayed in this film, but like it's just the whole amalgam of it. Everybody comes off so genuine. So, yeah. I, you know, same thing with her. Um, and you can definitely see why she ultimately ended up winning um, the Academy the Oscar, Award yeah. for her role in this um, for sure. Fun so, fact, though, at the time of this filming, she's about 27 years old. And Joe Pesci's about 47 years old. Yeah. Um, again, not surprising to see an older actor paired up with a younger actress. I mean, I feel like that's quite, you know, par for the course for a lot of, um, but like, even now, but certainly, certainly in movies like this then. But, but you didn't really care all that much because they had such good chemistry together. And like everything she does, she just you, you know when they say like an actor sort of like becomes the role or like sort of transcends it? Like yeah. you, you looked at her and you didn't think Marissa Tomei. You thought, you know, uh, Mona Lisa, right? Like, you know, she just embodied that character. She's so good. And, and, and Joe Pesci is so good in this role that it's just – it's amazing to watch her outshine him in every scene together. Yeah. Um, funny enough, I, I saw also, you know, sometimes we talk about like who the alternate casting options were for some of these things. Oh boy. And maybe possibly not surprisingly for Joe Pesci, the original 
want for this role was actually Robert De Niro. Um, but the studio came back and said, like, De Niro's not funny. Like, he's a serious actor. Find somebody else. So coming off of his win in Goodfellas, where, you know, he plays a little bit of a, a comic foil, we ultimately end up with Joe Pesci. Um, now, I obviously we've seen other things like analyze this where uh, you have um, I, I plenty of other films, but yeah. I, I bring up specifically analyze this for the, the kind of law end of 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 sort of how these things uh, go. But um obviously De Niro very capable <laughs> comedy actor um so funny enough uh, you know people like Jonathan Lynn uh in some of these interviews where they were talking about it afterwards were like well I was glad to be have proven right even if it wasn't for our film that he's like a comedic you know genius unto his own unto his own right but um I kind of can't picture De Niro in this role in the same way that I do with Pesci no it's 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 so I don't know. Honestly, I couldn't picture anybody but Marissa Tomei after seeing the movie. Like she just is so good in it, and she's just—I don't know. There's just—it's—it's it's hard to to think of anybody that could be better. You know. One other little funny um, casting note that I will mention while we're on the the topic. Um, Mitchell Whitfield, who plays Stan, mm-hmm. um, mentioned in an interview that while he was. Um, you know, essentially auditioning for this role that another actor who was up for his part was Will Smith. Really? Now, yeah, I ultimately, I guess they, they, I guess they were trying to figure out who or what they were going for in this film, but um, that would have been a really different and interesting character in this sort of space. Cause you have to figure again, this is getting close to like fresh Prince of Bel Air sort of timing and things like that. Like, can you imagine that same kind of, Will Smith with his energy in that role, you know? I almost wonder if they didn't go with him because he would outshine Ralph Macchio. This was my question, yeah. And I, I, you know, again, if you look up Mitchell Whitfield, he's had some other roles and things over time, but relatively, you know, compared compared to Will Smith, like really unknown. Um, I I get the same impression. I, I feel like Will Smith was almost too bright of a star at this point for what the role was ultimately you know, doing, but I don't know. It would have been interesting to, to really figure out like exactly what they were thinking, you know, with him auditioning for that and ultimately where they went, because arguably Will Smith is, is the much bigger star who obviously didn't get the part. So it's kind of an interesting uh, little note. I thought. <laughs> so um, Vinny goes to visit the boys uh, who are, have since been booked at a state correctional facility um, and, uh, Vinny, um, in kind of a funny scene, um, gets let in to talk to the boys. He like tips the guard, which I thought was very funny and the guard sort of took it. Now, um, of note, um, they actually filmed all the scenes that look like penitentiaries, you know, either indoor jail or outdoor at an actual penitentiary. Oh, wow. Um, none of that is, is a set. And as a matter of fact, the guards, including that one that lets him in are all guards at that penitentiary oh, that's cool yeah so so there's no guard actors they were actually in fact guards at that at that uh, particular prison oh, that's cool just kind I of like a funny that. thing yeah so um now usually um in a real life scenario where you would be talking with your lawyer they would not bring your lawyer to your cell your holding to cell you talk. Yeah. but we have this whole scene that's the second big misunderstanding joke of the film where essentially um, when he, you know, he was just talking, um, <laughs> I'm going to screw up his name again. Stan is talking to Bill in a previous scene about like, you know, what happens at prisons like this. And then of course the very next like scene, here comes 
Vinny in his kind of like leather outfit and the guards letting him in. He's giving the guy money. So he thinks he's there to molest him essentially. (laughs) And, uh, you know, the, you know, very extremely well-written dialogue in this scene does nothing to help his impression any further with that until he finally wakes up uh, the Bill character. Um, And, you know, obviously he reveals that he's his cousin at that point then. Um, but they basically had them be in the cell in order to facilitate this scene happening. They actually thought about cutting this scene out early on because they thought it like wasn't going to fly, but some of the early audience reactions yeah, to this so were, were really big. So they, they let it stay in despite the fact that it wouldn't necessarily make sense, you know, and then you ultimately do have the scene after this with them in the proper sort of meeting room where they would then be having this actual sort of discussion. Um, And so they basically said, like, it seemed like in order to like keep the funny scene in, nobody seemed to be noticing. They just went ahead with it. That's cool. So uh, we find out that this is actually Vinny's very first trial. Um, He's only been dealing with some personal injury stuff for the past six weeks. He graduated six years ago from law school and has been studying studying from the bar. No, no, no. He passed the bar six weeks ago. He he graduated from law school six years prior, and he and he failed to say that. No, you you said he he finished law school six weeks ago. Hey, gang, Pete here from the future. In case you weren't quite paying attention, I absolutely said it correctly. I don't know what Michael's talking about. Here, let's play it again. So uh, we find out that this is actually Vinny's very first trial. Um, He's only been dealing with some personal injury stuff for the past six weeks. He graduated six years ago from law school and has been studying. See what I'm saying? Shut up, Kennedy. All right, back to the show. So, yeah, basically, he he failed the bar exam six times. And what's funny about that is... Well, no, he, he failed five times. He passed on the... All right, right. let's start this over. Vinny <laughs> <laughs> failed his bar five times. He, he got it on the sixth. He was... He was done with law school six years ago. He was telling Marissa Tomei as far as 10 years ago that he was going to become a lawyer. And and that's how long she's been waiting to get married. For six weeks, he's been dealing with personal injury stuff since he passed the bar. But this will be his first trial. Better? <laughs> yes, that, that's better. Yes. Now we've I had it all written down. I must have just mixed up saying it. What's, um, funny, what's funny about it, though, is that when – Dory heard that she was like, Oh, six times. <laughs> well, so, so, so here's a fun fact for Dory. So where this movie comes from is Dale Lawner was talking with a guy and I think he either said he was a friend of his or just somebody he was chatting with in a bar who had just passed his bar exam. Mm-hmm. And they got to talking about like, Oh, like, you know, how did it go for you? And he's like, Oh, you know, I failed the first time, but I passed the second time. And so then he was asking the guy, like, have you heard about anybody, you know, having this problem, you know, past that? And the guy's like, Oh, well, if I, um, you know, if I failed again, I would have just taken it again and again until I passed it. He's like, well, you know, have you heard of, the, you know, somebody having to do this multiple times? So this guy said that at his particular law school, the one person that was known to have taken it the most amount of times was 13 times. Whoa. This is in real life. And basically from this conversation, he dreams up this movie. 
Um, So it's kind of very funny. So he incorporated, uh, you know, again, this sort of thing right into uh, the film. But now Vinny um, only had the six times. Now, here's a really fun fact and something that really will change this entire movie in your mind. Okay, Okay. I'm ready. So all throughout this film, um, there's scenes. First of all, you have this sort of thing with Vinny, like where um, it's taken him, you know, multiple, multiple times to pass the bar. Uh, he doesn't seem to know a lot of what he's doing in the courtroom in the beginning. Mm-hmm. The judge gives him a book very shortly once they start the, the trial yes, of like yeah. the local law case and everything. And you see him picking up this book repeatedly, but he seems to only ever be in the very first couple of pages of the book. Whereas Marissa Tomei later picks up the book and is like halfway through it and is, you know, telling him some of the things it says in it. A early version of this that they ended up changing. Now, this was something Dale, the writer, fought for a lot. And Jonathan Lynn decided to actually axe from the film. And I think it actually really changes this character because we see how smart and how crafty Vinny is throughout this whole film that it doesn't 100 percent add up with the reason that like he would fail this bar so many times and kind of whatever. Dale Launer wrote him as dyslexic. So the reason that he had such a hard time with the bar and with studying, with reading the book is that he literally couldn't read it. He was really struggling with with actually like studying and passing and all this sort of thing. Um, When they got to how they wanted to do this in the book, essentially like Dale had pitched doing some shots where he sits down with that book that the judge gives him and essentially like the page is backwards and he's really struggling with reading it. Jonathan Lynn said to him, I feel like I can't properly demonstrate or show dyslexia. I just want to cut it. So they ultimately cut it. So but this is the reason essentially why. Um, Vinny is a little bit of the way that Vinny is and why he had a harder time um, with some of that. So in an interesting way, I kind of wish they had kept some of that in because it doesn't 100% add up on his character why he was struggling with with some of the stuff that he was. But I think that just gives an interesting Funny enough, for someone like me who struggles with the same thing, like I would even connect more with the characters. Like, oh, my my eyes do that like i have that same problem and it's kind of funny that you know i don't know it's, it yeah. would change the character completely it would yeah um so uh the judge is interviewing Vinny um because essentially he has to come in as an out-of-state lawyer and sort of have an interview with him and sort of um get approved to to you know go ahead with the case which um Again, I mentioned last episode, uh, if you want some really interesting legal side of this film, check out Legal Eagle on YouTube. He has a mm-hmm. great video um, where he does like a bit of a deep dive as a lawyer on uh, this film. Um, and so uh, this is an actual thing that you would have to do as an out-of-state lawyer, essentially get approved to yeah. practice out-of-state um, temporarily. Now, again, maybe just worth interjecting here. Um, one of the reasons why the law is is considered by many lawyers Uh, to be so good and so accurate in this film. The director, Jonathan Lynn, who is um, British, uh, actually has a law degree from Cambridge University. So Mm. as they were working on this, he basically rewrote portions of the film or worked with Dale to do so to make the law as accurate as possible um, toward the actual trial. So, um, yeah, I think that was kind of a neat uh, neat thing because I guess he was upset with how many films – kind of inaccurately portray um, how a lawyer and how the law would act uh, in the hmm. film. Um, 
So uh, he lies to the judge, unfortunately, about his time because he's embarrassed about how he, he just graduated. He lies to the up. judge a lot in this yeah. movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, yeah, but I love how he kind of makes the subtle shifts to make it seem like he was misheard or or things like that throughout the whole thing. Um, but it, it's kind of starts a snowball running down the hill that will continue through the rest of the film. So, uh, as you mentioned this before, but um, Vinny and Lisa are woken up for the first time at their first hotel by a loud steam whistle, um, <laughs> which they ask at the next morning at breakfast, um, the guy who's cooking for them about that. And he's like, oh, it goes off every morning. You can hear it for miles. So it's like, well, no, 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 does the train normally come through every day no, no, at 5 no, a.m.? You're on, you're on a later hotel. That's after they've moved a couple times. That's no, when they the, moved along with the freight train. First one is a steam whistle. Oh, and the and steam like whistle. Yeah, yeah, it's like a, yes, you're right. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> and and this, um, this is where he learns about grits, too, at the diner, right? This is, yes, which comes back later in the film. Um, but I love that when they go into the diner, the breakfast menu literally says, breakfast, $1.99, lunch, dinner. That's your options. It doesn't have like like eggs and grits or that it just says breakfast <laughs> so like i guess we'll order breakfast um so uh yes he learns about the grits and how long it takes to actually you know cook the grits which obviously comes back into play later in the film so first day in court um they're doing their arraignment Vinny stays seated uh, when the judge asks them to get up Questions him about what he's wearing, which is his sort of black pants, black shirt, black leather jacket with the gold chain and the cowboy boots, which, you know, he thinks is making him blend. <laughs> um, and uh, Marissa Tomei's outfit is even crazier. <laughs> like the the shoulder pads on that thing were at like 11. It was yes. like really quite something. Funny thing about her clothing in this movie. All of it is popular again today. Like. Every single outfit she's got on, you will see someone on social media having an outfit like that today. <laughs> in many cases, I can see what social media you're following. I don't know if I've like I, I have a note later on about like that cat suit that she's sort of wearing well, at the log cabin. <laughs> I was saying this to Dory about that cat suit, and Dory's like, "Yeah, that's popular today. People wear that now." And I was like, "I thought so too." <laughs> I must be missing something. I see a lot of yoga pants. <laughs> You've moved out of the city. You don't see what I see in the city anymore. So. Fair enough. <laughs> um, so uh, Vinny um, really seems to be struggling with the arraignment process. Um, and again, um, I, I realize he's not the world's best lawyer at this point, but it, it's pretty simple. And the judge is really, you know, um, getting very frustrated with him. He's like, you know, a simple like guilty or not guilty. Will How do they plead? And uh, he's, he, you know, he's like, the next thing out of your mouth, like, you know, before I hold you in contempt is going to be guilty or not guilty. And he says something wrong again. And I love it. Um, the judge uh, who is fabulously, fabulously portrayed by Fred Gwynn. Oh, um, he just goes once again. There, the communication process is broken down. <laughs> I was looking stitches when he says that is so great. Um, and uh, kind of counterintuitive. Sad note: This is actually uh, Fred Gwynn's last film um, before he actually dies uh, a year later of really pancreatic cancer. Yeah, um, oh. which is such a bummer because he was so so awesome in this role. Um, yeah. The faces that he makes, the reactions that he has throughout this film are priceless. And I, I just love it. So, um, I mean, we don't have Utes without Fred Gwynn, you know, yeah. <laughs> so 
without him questioning that. So, so, um, bravo, sir. Um, so, uh, again, uh, Vinny is held in contempt, not for the last time. <laughs> this is going to become another running gag throughout the film, and he's taken away, and the trial is officially going to start the next day. Yeah. Um, so uh, we get a little bit more insight um, into Vinny. Uh, Mona Lisa is asking him why he seemed incompetent in court. I kind of love that several times she kind of keeps like saying to him, you're not going to this up for these kids are you um and uh really kind of keeps grilling him and he, he kind of you know i feel like she would know some of this already but um for our sake he sort of says that like he learned the basics in law school but he needs to learn procedure now which he would have been doing if he'd hired by, by a law firm or if he was watching cases in court but he's been working at her father's garage or nights and things like that hasn't had time to do so which again comes up a little bit you know i feel like his um, knowledge of the of the cars and things like that is is a little like overshadowed by Mercer Tomei's. But he clearly um, knows a lot about cars. He too. does. So I, it's, you kind of have this like one little quick line that he's been working in the garage basically as well. So you get a little bit more insight as to why he is able to recognize some of the things going on um, as well with the car. Um, and obviously, there's lots of car and garage talk throughout this film, which ultimately sets up, you know, the final, um, you know, thing that gets them free in the end of the I have to say one thing, though, about this whole trial, though. So we've got the two days of, like, the pre-trial hearings, and the court case itself for a murder trial <laughs> is over in two days, essentially. Like, it goes and, – and, you know, if you look at law today, you know, somebody gets put on trial for murder – they're sitting and waiting for their trial for months, if not years. I think what I would say, though, is that's maybe a New York court, not like Bumble, you know what, right. Alabama. Is is sort of the thing that I think is what's, you know, like I, I thought it was even funny when they're doing the arraignment that they're like, all right, first up on the docket today is this murder. I'm like, what else have you got? Like, you know, like what else is going on? Somebody like tipping cows or something? Like I don't, I don't, you know, they were making it out like this town is like real. B- Billy Bob know, stole some chickens from, <laughs> from the yeah. farm. <laughs> yeah, somebody stole the free manure from the beginning of the movie. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I think that's basically what it is. And again, I think there is a period of time that's that's passing by here. I don't think it's two days. I think it's presumably at least several weeks, um, mm-hmm. just given some of the outward stuff that happens in it, but I think they're just skipping around because you can't, you know, spend all that time on that. Um, So uh, in order to bail him out, Mona Lisa mentions that she um, had to cash in a bunch of traveler's checks and she said she got stiffed trying to cash in the traveler's checks. So they head to a place that says pool and chicken on the outside, which is amazing. Um, And I I wasn't sure where this was going at first because I couldn't really remember how they led into this. Um, and I don't know why she was cashing in the traveler's checks, presumably at this pool bar, but at any rate, it sounds like she was playing this guy, JT, in a game of pool for $200, and that when she beat him, the guy refused to pay her. Um, and uh, the banter that then happens in this scene between Joe Pesci, this is where you start to really see Vinny shine. Because yeah. up till this point, he seems kind of like a, just like, like kind of like a bumbling Fool. He kind yeah. of doesn't seem to know his stuff, or whatever. But now is when you see this, like, as as you know, Danny LaRusso keeps pointing out, like this Gambini sort of talent that he has to kind of like get himself into a situation and like really, you know, weed his way through it in right. a really um, good way. 
Um, (laughs) But this um, banter between the two of them where he's like, let's see, shall I get my ass kicked or collect $200? I think I'm going to go with collect $200, even though I could use a good ass kicking. (laughs) It's so great. It's so funny. Um, So, again, just really great scene. And then he's like – He's like, here's a, let me, he's like, let me counter propose to you. How about I like beat the ever loving shit? Out of you, you know? <laughs> like, you know, from there, like, uh, you know, I can take the $200 instead of having to kill you. Cause the guy says like, you can take the 200 over my dead body instead of having to kill you. Um, and then this becomes yet another like rolling gag throughout yeah. the film. Like the multiple times that he stops back to see this guy. Um, so anyway, um, first day of the trial, um, we have a series of witnesses who, um, the first witness says she heard some loud bangs followed by seeing two young men running out, um, and getting into a green car. Um, and she identifies the two boys in court and in the picture of the car as the suspects. Second witness also says, he says the boys, uh, run into the store, heard the shots a little while later when, you know, he was, he was making breakfast when he saw them go in. He's eating breakfast when he heard the shots and then he saw them come out. Same thing from a third witness says he saw them. Now, I thought this was like a little like kind of funny at first that they were able to drag up so many witnesses because the first time that you see this place, it seems like it's just like in the like middle it's of nowhere. nowhere right. But basically yeah. it turns out that it's like the place has like a couple of like neighbors quasi around it and across the street that that all miraculously were like looking out their windows the essentially time. the time that these these boys were were there you know <laughs> so again little um loose which obviously these these you know um witnesses you know testimony kind of comes unraveled pretty quick later um in the film spoiler alert yeah <laughs> so um the arresting officer also uh, starts giving some testimony about the interview and confession now one of the weird things is I think he almost like wrote down the confession wrong because like he like sort of like quotes him as like that he admitted to murdering the guy and then like redacted it later, which is not what he said. He sort of was like, I committed the murder. Like, yeah, what? like, so I don't know. It's a little like fishy that he sort of like jumped to that like conclusion. I thought that was like a little a little weak and they kind of ultimately don't come back around to that. Yeah, they don't. Um, so the court, um, you know, says it finds sufficient evidence to start the trial officially Monday. Um, so uh, the judge asked Vinny if he remembers him telling him to dress appropriately the next time he appeared in court. He's back in the outfit again, and we get that line where he's like, you were serious about that? Um, of course, next thing is we see Vinny on the prison bus again. <laughs> he's now <laughs> held in contempt again. I love that just like that jump cut to him like already on the prison bus. Yeah. Um. So again, we get uh, Marissa picking up from jail and, and again grilling him. You're not going to this up for these kids again or everything. Um, but we catch glimpses that Vinny's actually a really good guy. Um, he's he's you know keeps picking up that book. He's trying to look through the Alabama law book um, that he that the judge gave him earlier in the movie. Um, and uh, he genuinely cares. He genuinely he does well. So we we get this like little chink in his armor because he kind of comes off as like this like Brooklyn like hey you know I'm a wise guy sort of guy whatever. But he basically admits to her that he's really scared, that he's like terrified that he's going to you know screw up the case uh, and that it would be, you know, these two boys would be kind of like up the river then. Um, so, again, like I, I used the word genuine before. I'll use it again. Like he feels like somebody who is a genuine character in this point. He's not like just some like like hotshot kind of lawyer who's like, whatever, it'll be what it is. You know, <laughs> you know where this fully comes together. And I don't know if you have this further down your notes when 
him and the prosecutor sit down together and they have that conversation and he kind of tells him why he became a lawyer. Yes. It, it's such a great scene. And you even see the prosecutor like, huh, this guy's not just some goofy New York, you know, hotshot. He's seems like a genuine guy. No, it's so true. And I think the other thing I would add to that, too, is you have to remember like that the um, the DA is played by Lane Smith, who who also um, rules in this movie. Like, yes. And he you know, he's played a ton of roles similar to this throughout time. Um, but, you know, like <laughs> you take, for example, like his character in like Mighty Ducks, right? Like mm-hmm. where he's kind of like this, like he comes in, he's like, oh, well, he's the coach of like the Hawks or whatever. But like you find out he's actually kind of like an evil bastard, yeah. you know, and like you're waiting because you've seen Lane Smith play roles like that throughout time. Like that, like he's going to do something to really mess with Vinny or whatever. But like he's like the utmost like, prof- you know, professional courtesy. Like he's like he's kind of rooting for him. You know, he he like gives him his uh, cabin to stay in. He yeah. takes him hunting with him. Like and you're waiting. You're like he's going to do something. He's going to try and do like a gotcha sort of thing. And he kind of like almost does that at one point where he finally says later and we're getting ahead of ourselves here. But he sort of says like. I've got a witness coming in and we'll, we'll, you know, show him to you tomorrow. But if I were you, I'd be worried. And you're like, Oh, here he's about to turn heel and finally be this evil character. But like, he really basically says that he's like, I'm doing this out of like the spirit of like, you're like a good opponent. And like, Mm -hmm. I want to like, you know, we'll have like a little bit of like friendly rivalry going on here. Um, So again, refreshing. (laughs) It's, It's nice to see a character that's not just like a terrible human being for the sake of being a terrible human being. Cause that's not really who you would figure most DAs would be in real life. You right. Know? He even sort of says himself, he's like, I became a DA cause he's like, I was, I was doing like, um, you know, like, like defending people. And he's like, you know, I finally was like, you know, like, let me turn or I think he was sort of saying like, he's like, I was trying to like put the, you know, like, you know, defend these people. And he's like, you know what, maybe I need to like turn this around and like, you know, do something positive with my career as a lawyer and something like that. He kind of felt like he was doing something shady morally. So he wanted to turn it around. That's why he, took up being a DA and ultimately he offers like Vinny later in the film. Like you kind of, he kind of like hints, like if you want to come live here, like, you know, I, I would love you to come work with me. So, yeah, no. And it almost like, there's a lot of elements in this movie that clearly could have led up to a sequel if they wanted to. And I think they would have been able to pull it off. No problem. All right, so, so as good a time as any to bring that up. So um, there's been talk for years about doing a, my cousin Vinny sequel, um, and for a long time, Joe Pesci was really pushing the narrative of doing that. But Marissa Tomei, of all people, didn't want to do it. Um, now, in the last few years, my understanding is that she's turned her mind around on that and has been more open to it. But now studios feel it's too far it's set far, away from it. Far too and far. And so they're now. kind of not interested. But that being said, essentially, there's still some kind of like interest between them sort of saying like, I don't know, it would be really interesting to see where Vinny ultimately ended up at this much later point in his career. So who knows? It's not necessarily out of the realm of, of possibly happening, you know, especially in this like Netflix, you know, day and age where there's a constant push for new content. So who knows? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, what's funny about it is, and as you said earlier, like, you know, um, I'm blanking on her name. Uh, Mona Lisa is reading this law book and she's like getting very familiar with it. Almost like maybe she'd become a lawyer. Well, you know? they sort of like almost talk about, the, you know, all throughout the film. And again, this is a point that I was going to bring up pretty shortly here, too. 
you know, she kind of keeps offering, how can I help? How can I help? How can I help? And one of the final things that they're saying as they're sort of driving off in the end of the movie is like, oh, you know, the worst thing in the world is that you didn't do this all by yourself. You had to have some help. Imagine that. Imagine you'd have to keep having case after case where you'd have to say thank you because somebody helped you at the end of the day. And it's almost inferring the fact that maybe, you know, she's already an out of work hairdresser and mm-hmm. all this sort of thing. Maybe she'll kind of pick up and, and run with something like it too. So I think that would be really interesting, you know, to find out that the two of them started like a firm or something like that together down the road. Yeah, I agree. Anyway, um, the boys at this point, um, particularly more so led by, um, I feel like Stan convincing Bill are deciding to actually use a public defender instead of Vinny. Vinny tries to talk him out of it. And basically Bill decides to keep Vinny on while Stan picks up the public defender. Um, and, uh, he starts off genuinely enough, seems like a good lawyer. And then the trial happens. <laughs> exactly. So there's like one little quick, great scene I'd mention where, as the boys are discussing keeping Vinny on, they had this scene previous where like this guard is talking to them about how like they're, they don't have like a budget to like keep the electric chair going properly. Yeah. <laughs> and like they're chatting and like the lights start flickering on and off again. And it's just like, oh man, that's not so good. <laughs> it's um, not reassuring for somebody on death row. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So um, Vinny shows back up at the pool hall, um, the chicken and pool place to try and collect. And the guys are waiting outside for him. And he's got this giant wad of bills. And just as I was questioning, like, I've seen $200. It doesn't look like a giant wad of bills. He walks up to him and Vinny's like, how do I know that's $200, not just a 20 wrapped around a bunch of ones? And the guy's like, uh. (laughs) So again, another one of these just like quick little little interjections of that sort of thing. Um, And again, these hotels that are at are the worst. So they've had now that first one that had the the, um, steam whistle. They've had a second one where it was next door to a pig slaughterhouse. Now, the third one, which is what you were mentioning before, they're near that freight train that came by at like five in the morning. And he goes down to the guy and says to him, like, is it the usual thing that this train comes by at five in the morning? He goes, no, not at all. And then the next time it happens again, he's like, I thought you said it wasn't at at, at five. He's like, no, it's usually at like 4.15. So like, yeah, that's that's the, the, the kind of the idiot at the hotel. Um, so this is the scene where you were, you were chatting about. So Vinny tells the story of how he became the lawyer, very endearing scene. Um, and he invites, uh, the other guy invites him to go hunting. Um, but I, I bring this up to bring up how Mona Lisa <laughs> starts like questioning him about going hunting. And he's talking about like, what should I wear? You know, like, are these pants look all right? Oh, the deer scene. <laughs> and she's like, she's like, uh, she's like, let's, you're going to kill an innocent deer. Let's say, you're out in the woods and you're a beautiful deer and you find this crystal cool water you're drinking. And just as your lips touch the water, bam, your head goes flying apart. You get shot in the head. And the last thing you're thinking about, but what, would, who would you give a f- if what kind of pants the mother f- you just shot you? Was <laughs> so here's the thing. This is the exact line that Dory does to a T. And she even did it when we were watching it last night. But when I tried to record her with my phone, she was like, you're not recording me. I can't have had this. And I was like, all right. So I was not allowed to record her. I was like, you can give me any line in the movie. She's like, no, I won't do it. So I couldn't get my wife to record. But this is the line that she says all the time. And I tried very hard to get her to do it. And she, she, she refused. All right. Well, as a as a 
not so much as awesome consolation prize. You at least got my version of yes. it. <laughs> um, so uh, anyway, Vinny does go off hunting and his whole thing with the hunting is he wants to see if he can't, I love he keeps using the word, I, I want to see if I can finesse the, the DA into letting him see some of his files. If only he could see some of his files. So Vinny has no clue about disclosure, which yeah. seems insane. He, you know, again, like she, like Mona Lisa even questions him about it. Like, you know, she they, knows about well, because she's reading the book, she's reading the uh, the uh, the book that was supplied to him. She's like halfway through it, so then he asked her to show her the page and everything like that um, later on with some of the information. But um, it, it just seems like there's no way that you could get through law school without knowing what discovery is, even if you're not going to be a trial lawyer. Disclosure, excuse me. Well, yeah, discovery and disclosure, kind of two parts of the of the um, the initial proceedings of a case like this. Um, but it, it, it just seems insane to me, um, that, that somebody wouldn't know about that even from law school. Um, so you, you would assume it's even on the bar somewhere. <laughs> you would hope. Yeah. Um, but anyway, of course the guy like immediately is like, Oh, well I'll have my secretary give you copies of everything. So he feels like he's done some like great crafty sneaky thing, but really it was just, you know, part and parcel. Yeah. Um, so Vinny goes around and questions the witnesses and he actually, um, kind of figures out, um, a lot of great sort of ways that he's going to get around, um, you know, essentially their testimony in court by doing so. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of like a fun scene where he's traveling around uh, with Mona Lisa's camera. I should have mentioned earlier, she's got this pink camera she's carrying around with her throughout the film. And that ultimately obviously plays a role later on in the some of the photos that she takes and some of the ones he takes. Now, one of the weird things I thought was Vinny is using her camera to take the photos while he's doing the witness stuff. But later on in the film, there's a little continuity error. She comes and she's like, oh, I finally got my photos processed. And it has like stuff from before he was taking those photos and stuff, presumably, I don't know. Like she had like uh, like the pictures of like she took at the crime scene and things like that. So it's a little odd that he had pictures, you know, done up essentially before she did. I thought it was like a weird little continuity blip. Um. So um, Vinny is finally in a nice suit, although he has a series of just awful ties that he wears with with these suits throughout. You look like you have something to say about that. So when he first has the suit, right, and he going going to trial for the first time, he has this moment where throughout the entire movie, the, this town keeps saying that we're known for our mud and like if your car gets stuck in the mud like this this town is synonymous with having mud and cars being stuck in it yes. and again that plays into the story as this as it goes on later um so they're doing jury selection now again this is something that seems a little silly um now if you've ever done jury duty um, you'll learn very quickly that like essentially whatever one lawyer wants, the other one usually wants the opposite of. Yeah, so they the have to agree that, like, on. Yeah, they had like this like woman who's like, send him up the river. And, you know, like he's like, oh, she'll do. But like Vinny, if he was like, you know, at all with it would be like, no, I have a problem, <laughs> you know. But for the yeah, sake this, of the this comedy of the, the film, uh, obviously they, they let it go through. Um, but the judge calls Vinny in because he has since contacted New York um, to see if he's actually practicing law there. And Vinny tells him he had to change his name to Jerry Gallo. And it turns out that Jerry Gallo is like a big deal sort of lawyer in New York, but it turns out that he actually died a week before, um, which is going to be problematic again. 
So uh, next we cut to the cabin in the woods that was given them to stay in by uh, the DA. Again, we mentioned her in that wacky bodysuit, um, you know, sort of um, giving him grief about um, essentially her ticking clock and why they aren't married yet. Now, funny mm-hmm. enough, this was a studio change. Dale Lawner didn't want this in the script, um, but the studio's like, oh, you know, every woman in one of these films always has to be hassling the guy about something. And he's like, I really don't want to do that in this movie. And they're like, Oh no, it has to have that. And so he basically just found like the best way he could to incorporate that, which was Mm -hmm. to kind of like make it part of the gag of like, I've got all this stuff on my, you know, like, she's like, maybe it's not a great time, you know, like for her to stop kind of even, you know, like, and she, and she even agrees. It's probably not the right time. Like, so that's kind of his way that he wrote it like out of that with that character. So, um, that's where that comes from anyway. Um, obviously, we mentioned a little bit earlier, too, um, Vinny had promised to marry her after he won his first case, but it's been 10 years. Um, so they're trying to stay at this this cabin in the woods to get a little peace and quiet, finally away from all these noises and things that keep happening in the town. This is this the is, funniest scene of the movie. This, this, <laughs> I genuinely left. I, like, I had to pause the movie to write the note down, but I had to pause it because I was in stitches that – there's this awful sound and he just wakes up and goes, what the f- was that? <laughs> and the way he says it is so amazing. And basically this is a screech owl, which yeah. is actually a real um, type of owl that would be in this area as it turns out. And again, another thing that was written into the movie based off of Dale Lawner's experience driving around that area that he was woken up by a screech owl in the same sort of manner. And he's like, what, what is that? Um, now, funny thing, um, I, I guess they were sort of saying in an interview that people were saying they thought that that owl was like a Muppet, like a little like a puppet uh, sort of thing. I think it was a real, think it was a real it, owl. It was in fact a real owl. They trained it um, for it. It was basically a wild owl, but they trained it a little bit, um, basically just not to be afraid of the gunshots when they were firing the, the you know the gun off as he comes running out, starts just blasting, oh, <laughs> just um, shooting into the woods like yeah, he just runs out like bam, bam, bam. <laughs> and the owl's just sitting there. But what they said is that they went to do this take. Um, with the owl who's sort of in the foreground and the owl turns and looks at Vinny, then turns back around, looks at the camera and makes a screech again. And that was the very first take and it was perfect. And they didn't bother to even do a second one. Wow. They're like, it was as if the owl was like, like just tuned into exactly what we needed it to do, that it looked at him, looked back at the camera made the screech again. So they said it was like, like perfect kismet. That's hilarious. Um, That's yes. Awesome. <laughs> So basically, you know, the owl is now keeping him awake and they decide, okay, let's go sleep in the car. And they go out basically into the middle of the woods, which seems extremely far from wherever (laughs) that cottage is because they're in the middle of nowhere. And they uncomfortably fall asleep in the car. And overnight, there's this terrible thunderstorm and like incredible lightning incredible yeah they really can't catch a break (laughs) and Vinny keeps saying he's been like awake for five days he's been awake for six days like whatever sort of thing so the next morning they wake up and the car is now stuck in this famous mud because the town is constantly saying how it's known (laughs) for its mud and and they get stuck in it and the funny thing about this is like Mona Lisa is a car expert he's presumably a pretty good car person himself they can't figure out how to get this thing out of the mud. Like, 
which I found sort of odd. But here's the funny thing about it, right? He gets out of the car and he slips and he flips over. And this particular sight gag, (laughs) I was like, is he playing the character from Home Alone all of a sudden? Because the way he flipped, it was as if he was playing his character in Home Alone. And it was so funny. And I'm like, wow, that's exactly how he would have fallen in that movie. So he gets up, opens the trunk, and I don't even know how he does it. Well, so so like – there's a couple of things that are interesting about the scene because, again, it plays into what they talk about later. Like he mentions or she mentions on the stand that a lot of cars without like the proper like posit track, whatever. Posi traction. Um, yeah. Basically, one wheel will spin. The other one won't do anything and you'll bury yourself in the mud. So that's what their car's doing. So he gets out and he gets to the trunk and the trunk, he has wood chocks in the back. Yeah. So he's trying to get the wood out to put it under the tires. But in doing so, the wood hooks a bag. And the bag goes flying out into the mud. Yeah. And within the bag is his brand new suit that she politely got got dry cleaned, but for some reason put it in the trunk instead of the backseat of the car. And he's like, like rolled up my- in like a bag. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's not even like a dry cleaning bag. It's in like, like a like a grocery store bag. Yeah. <laughs> so now it's covered in mud. He's covered in mud. They get the car out, they get into town, you know. Whatever clothing five and dime place is in town was closed at the time. So I guess he's running inside to deal with something for the case. Yeah, well, he's got like 30 minutes. So like his whole thing is that he's got like 30 minutes to get a shower, a new suit and get to the courthouse to be on time. Now, it's really worth pointing out that he's run into this dopey JT guy again who's like, look, I finally got the money. And he just like walks up to him and does like this like flying uppercut. Looks like something out of like Street Fighter yes. or something like that. Just knocks the WWF the guy. and knocks him unconscious. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then like, as you say, like at yeah, the Taylor's place, it, like it's just like the Taylor's has flu. Like yeah. everybody at the store has the flu. So then it's like there's this secondhand store across the, the the street. So Mona Lisa runs in there to get this like absolutely insane suit. <laughs> it's, it's essentially a tuxedo, and it's yeah, just it's yeah. like insane, like velvet, purple, or like maroon tuxedo yeah. <laughs> with like flaps and everything. Like it was a real like unbelievable suit, but. It's what's funny about it is he's wearing this ridiculous suit and he still does great in that day. Like he just sort of like, well, it is what it is. I'm going to suit. Yeah, but we can't gloss over him and that judge talking about it at the beginning because the judge like all along is like, are you doing this to like be disrespectful to me and all this sort of thing? He's like, (laughs) he says that great line. He's like, I wore this ridiculous thing. (laughs) For you. <laughs> like, he's like, because I always, you were going to wear my leather outfit, but I know how much you hate that. <laughs> it's so funny. I think he'd have been better off actually wearing the leather thing, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. But, oh, it's so funny. And it, it like, but you know, what's, what's good about it is they didn't drag that joke out. Like he didn't wear it the next day. Like he had just that one, like we don't need to see it repetitively yeah and they and they didn't drag that joke out other than that one day which i thought was very smart for sure and it is it's so funny but he's still so good in the scene regardless so it's time for Vinny to do his opening statement 
Um, and turns out he's completely fast asleep at the table. Um, so he gets up and basically his response is like the, everything that guy just said was bullshit, which of <laughs> course they strike from the record because it, it, it's not even an opening statement. It's like an argument. You know? yes. so it doesn't even make any sense. Um, and so then the public defender gets up. Now, I, I had forgotten completely that I, that I, this I, guy was in this role Um I think his name is Austin Pendleton. Um, I too completely forgot this whole thing too. He is a friend of, I, I forget, either Dale Lawners or Jonathan Wynn. I think Jonathan Wynn. And I think Jonathan Wynn put him into the film in this role. And it's just a quick little part because he's not in it for terribly long. Um, he does have a stutter in real life. Oh, really? Um, and and um, I don't know how much of that played into exactly what he was doing on screen, but basically um, several people, including Dale Lawner, says that he had to like hide behind the camera because he was just dying during his performance of this. And supposedly, I, I didn't go back to watch this to see if it's actually true, but supposedly if you go back and, and watch the scene while he's like really going to town on this whole thing um, – Mitchell Whitfield, who's Stan, mm. apparently he says you can just see his shoulders like going like up and down, up and down because he's like at the table in the background also doing everything within his power just not to like die laughing. Um, so apparently it caught a lot of people like, you know, off guard on, on set on the day of and was very funny. Um Obviously, a huge problem for them because he's like, I get a little nervous <laughs> when I when I. But I'm getting better. He says, he's like, "This so, is better." Yeah, yeah. It's such a random, quick little snippet role, but it was very, very funny. Um, and so he he's trying to question um, one of the witnesses about being able to see properly. He thinks he's got him. He's like, "Oh, you usually have your glasses or whatever." Um, and he's he's like, oh, um, well, those are reading glasses. Already it's throwing him off. He's like, well, can you identify the eye color of the, the guys across the room? And he's like, yes, uh, green, hazel, and like brown. Like, brown, like yeah. <laughs> he's like, okay. <laughs> so he goes back. And now we get presumably the most memorable um, sort of back and forth of the whole film. Obviously, the name that you're using on on our recording here tonight, which is Joe Pesci identifies the two young guys as the Utes and the judge stops him and he goes, the what? And he goes, what? And he goes, Utes. And he's, he's like, what? And he's like, what is a Ute? <laughs> he's like, Excuse me, your honor, the youths. <laughs> Um, but, uh, neat fact about this, um, basically when Joe Pesci, uh, met with Fred Gwynn and they were kind of going over some of the lines and, and things that they would be going back and forth, um, on the film, Joe Pesci called them the Utes, like just being Joe Pesci, not thinking about it. Oh, really? And, and Fred Gwynn was like, what? <laughs> and he's, he's like, Utes? And he's like, yeah. And so basically like the scene in the film is how that happened between them in real life. That's like basically Dale Lautner was in the room with them and he wrote down exactly what they said and they put it back into the film, like as something like just like completely natural. So um, really funny that that like happened just completely out of the blue. And that became like probably the most memorable um, interaction in, in the whole film. So kind of a cool, uh, cool thing. 
So um, Vinny's gets on a real roll now. So he gets the witness um, with how long it take him to cook grits, which is something obviously we talked about with the chef earlier in the movie. He says it would only take me five minutes, but the you know the chef had sort of said to him, "Oh, if you're doing it properly, it's like twenty minutes." Um, so, you know, he's playing it up to the, to the jurors and they're, you know, like you've got the magic grits, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, so he's like, all right, well, maybe I'm mistaken or whatever. Um, and, and I love, he's, he, he finishes with every one of these witnesses going, I've got no more use for this guy. <laughs> so Stan is like, I, I want him back. I want Vinny back. So unfortunately the other public defender loses his, um, job, but Vinny is now full on, um, you know, representing the two of them. Um, but he's getting back on the bus again because he's been held in contempt yet again. And Mona Lisa is saying, you know, I'll bail you out. And he says, you know what? Forget it. I'd rather sleep in jail. I see if I can actually get a good night's sleep for once. And he actually does. No, he doesn't. Or their riot happens. <laughs> he's like, he's sitting there and like, like a full on riot is happening in the middle of the night. And he just sits there kind of like smiling because it's like. No, no, no. No, I think he's sleeping. I think he's sleeping through it like it's New York City and it's loud. Is it? Maybe. I, yeah. I think I think he's sleeping through the riot. Maybe the truth lies somewhere between us there on that one. <laughs> um, yes. So so anyway, um, uh, Vinny, next day, he's grilling the next witness, which I, again, like, I don't, it, it, to your point, it seems like some of this is being dragged out. I don't know that they put a whole day of court in just to interview one witness and now it's got to go to the next day, you know, sort of thing. Um, so, uh, grilling the next witness, um, showing him the pictures he took with Mona Lisa's camera that show how, you know, he's got like dirty windows with dirty screens with a tree in the way and not five, but seven bushes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm finished with this guy. Third witness, Vinny's questioning the, the older woman, um, and asking her about her eyesight and how many times she's changed her eyeglass prescription. And she says, Oh, you know, they're probably a hundred feet away. And he takes the tape measure out to 50 feet and he holds up two fingers, which is the judge is like, let the record show he's holding up two fingers, which is like, come on, <laughs> like, you know, a little silly. But then he holds up two fingers again and she misidentifies it as four. So her, you know, testimony is basically out the window, too. Yeah. So at this point, um, all of the witnesses are basically like faulty witnesses. They're like all discredited. Yeah. Can, can really be held up. Um, so this is what I mentioned earlier. The DA calls him, says he's got some new information. You know, he's, you know, we'll see in the morning. Uh, and they had to write this down. He had a special automotive investigator of forensics for the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Try saying that five times fast. Not going to happen. Um, but um, he comes up, he calls, you know, he sort of says, can we approach the bench? And he has this really intelligent objection that he comes up with about the surprise witness um, but for whatever reason, the judge overrules it uh, and lets it proceed. Uh, and the witness is testifying that the tires, um, the tires and like the distance between them and everything match exactly those of their Buick. Um, and the judge, uh, in the meantime, gets a note that Jerry Gallo is dead. So here we go again. You know, and uh, so he's like, all right, well, did I say Jerry Gallo? You know, no, I said Jerry Callow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the judge is like, all right, we're going to get through this right now. So he calls the, the, you know, the clerk of the city of New York directly, but they can't talk until after three. So he's like, you've got about 90 minutes to win this case, um, you know, before I find out that you're, you know, essentially lying to me or whatever. So um, Vinny's at lunch. Mona Lisa comes in and offers to help. She's been offering to help several times. 
And he's really frustrated at this point. And, um, he, you know, he keeps turning her down and she kind of gets upset with him. Um, and he kind of is acting like a jerk about it. He's looking through her pictures because she comes in. She's like, look, I finally got my pictures. And he's looking through them like, oh, yeah, this one's really going to bust the case open. Look at this one. It's it's me in the shower. And, you know, he's kind of just being like a real like jerk to her. She goes storming out and he's, you know, I'm sorry. You know, like, and, you know, like he he kind of can't get her back. Um, but he gets back in court uh, and he's basically um, trying to refute some of the expert testimony that the other guy came in with, you know, well, no. tires. So be, before that happens, did, did I miss the part where, you, where he sees what something in the photos? He doesn't see it yet. We see it like as an audience, it like zooms in on the, the final picture of uh, the tire tracks going over the bump, but he doesn't notice it until a little, oh, right. a little, little, little while later. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Um, so he's trying to like, he's like kind of trying and he's like floundering now. He's like, you know, like, like, you know, aren't these the most popular tires in like the country right now? And the guy says, yes. And isn't it conceivable? And he's like, yes, but it's unlikely that, that, you know, the same type of car would be, um, around there. Um, and the defense finally, you know, rests its case and the judge calls on Finney to make his case. He's sitting there kind of not knowing how he's going to proceed. And this is then where he sees it. He's sort of like looking through and he has, uh, an earlier photo that they had of the the skid marks and then also her new one. And he's sort of looking at the two of them and it finally pops into his head. Now, what I think is interesting is we get her expert testimony on what the difference is with um, these. But I think it's interesting that he noticed what the difference would be, which would lead you to believe that he has almost just as much automotive knowledge that he would have realized that it was wouldn't have been their car due to right. this not having – this particular type of tracks and then the, and the particular struts or whatever that the car had in the back that allowed it, um, the axle to move independently of, of, um, you know, not like a fixed axle. Um, so, uh, he asked for the judge, um, if he can go fetch his witness that are out in the court right now, also asked the sheriff if he could look up something for him. Um, so he goes out, tries to talk her into it. She's super pissed at Vinny. She kind of like gets begrudgingly dragged back in, by like the um, the court bailiff and and made to sit there, um, and I can't one hundred percent keep up with all the car talk because they get very technical on very different you know parts and things like that. But essentially, Vinny shows her the photograph. She realizes that it's not um, an identical Buick, which has been his um, sort of defense all along. That it, another couple of kids in an identical Buick rolled up, which seemed very unlikely. Turns out it's a different type of car, which is a Pontiac. It's not a Buick Skylark. It's a Pontiac uh, Tempest. Tempest. Thank you. I know I had it written here somewhere, (laughs) Um, which has the the pause attraction feature that the Buick didn't have, which would she recognizes this because the skid marks are like the same length. And so they mentioned like, you know, the other one would have been spinning and it wouldn't have had like the same sort of shape or whatever. Um, it has a lot to do with, that, like I said, how the car jumps over the cur- curb. It had an independent rear suspension, which the Buick didn't have, leaving only two other types of cars. One is a Corvette, which she points out could never be confused right. with a Buick Skylark, leaving the 63 Pontiac Tempest. So <clears throat> Vinny recalls the FBI expert who confirms what Mona Lisa was right and that their Buick couldn't have lit, met, you know, made the marks. And then Vinny calls the sheriff, who in the meantime has looked up the information and has found that a uh, Pontiac Tempest was found uh, and two boys were arrested two days earlier driving it. It was a stolen car in a different part of uh, Georgia. 
And they also recovered a 357 Magnum revolver, which was literally the smoking gun. It was the same type of, of ammunition that was used to kill um, the store clerk. And Trotter, the DA, dismisses all charges on behalf of the state. So we've won. We're at the end of the case. We're, we're pretty much at the end of the film. Um, but Vinny is doing his best <laughs> after the case to try and get out of there before the judge as catches up with possible. him without the Jerry Callow stuff. Um, and every single person is stopping him and like hugging him and like, you know, offering him jobs and this and that. And, you know, Mona Lisa's pulling up in the car. They're going to try and like just get out of Dodge. And the judge catches him and walks up and you expect he's going to come down on him. But he's like, congratulations. I talked to the people or I got a fax from the, you know, New York. It looks like you're an up and up guy, whatever. Uh, and it turns out that um, in the meantime, Mona Lisa had contacted somebody in the clerk's office in New York and basically had some information sent over. And in a really kind of fun payoff, it turns out that the, her friend in the clerk's office is Judge Malloy, who's the guy that got Vinny started on law all the years ago. So it was right. kind of fun that he's sort of like watching out for him. Now, Vinny takes this a little sourly sort of saying, you know, like I, I wanted to do this without help or whatever. And of course, then we have the, the bit we were talking about with her before talking like, you know, you could use other people's help and they sort of ride off into the sunset. So that's my cousin Vinny. Um, again, we said it before. I'll say it again. Fabulous film, very genuine film. Um, I really had a great time watching it. I was really hating taking the notes on it because as you've said in the past, it really sucked to keep pausing it so I can sit there and, and you know, Siri and answer into the thing. Um, but you know, it's, it's just so much fun. Yeah. It's um, a fun movie. Yeah. I, Five out of five stars. You know? No, I, I, you know, I really enjoyed this movie. Like, I, I will have to say, you know, the last several movies we've had, I've really, really enjoyed. This one, I don't know. It just, it just has a good feel to it. It moves well. It's two hours, but it doesn't feel like two hours. It like, doesn't. Yeah, despite like being like kind of heavily about like law and things like that, it really kind of moves along nice. Yeah, no, I, I really thought it was a great film. A lot of fun, great cast all around, you know, just like you said, you know, the, the judge alone, like just seeing Herman Munster, you know, in this other role, it was just so fun to see him. And he's so good with Joe Pesci. They have such a great back and forth. You know, everybody really played their roles well. And as you said, the two guys that are actually on trial are the least important characters in the whole movie. Exactly, yeah. But, you know, this was a lot of fun to watch. You know, I really liked it. Yeah, I, again, just fun film. Um, I hope uh, the listening audience enjoyed uh, watching it and, and listening back to it. Um, I don't know. There's not really much more to, to add on this one. I think we're I do have a fun thing to say, though. So sure. What, when I'm going to watch it last night, we both figured out, oh, it's on HBO Max. Great. Cool. <laughs> so I pop it on my tv on the fire stick and it won't load <laughs> for like a half an hour it wouldn't load nice put it on my phone works fine I'm like okay you know what i'll switch over to apple tv and airplay it on the phone 
wouldn't load. Nice. <laughs> I had to like reset my whole internet and it came up. But I was like, what? And again, this is presumably with the whole family there going like, Michael, why isn't the film working? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Everybody breaking my chops. Like what is going on? I'm like, I've never lost the internet yet when it comes to these things. I'll figure it out. <laughs> About half an hour later, I got it to work, which is so funny. I'm like, ah, oh, this is going to be an easy one to find. It's there. And it wouldn't play. It was like, God. Yeah, where I can um, for folks, you know, again, a lot of people will have these things on DVD and otherwise, but uh, where I can, if something's streaming, I'm going to try and point it out just in case, you know, listeners would like to watch the film around the same time that we're also talking about it to kind of refresh their um, memories as well. So we've had a couple lucky ones here now where it's actually been pretty easy to get, unlike some others you and I have dealt with in the, in the past years here. Yeah. So what do we got to do for... April. I'm ready out. for once. I actually got it all the information up. So here's something that I was not counting on, which is we're going to have basically a wild card month for us again here. Um, because last time we were talking about some of the options that we could watch and we sort of missed out on a few, we're going to have a chance to revote for some of these again. So oh, cool. number one is going to possibly, and this is where I'm going to pitch for us to, I'm going to pitch three movies for us to throw on the vote again here this time. Number one is going to be Basic Instinct. For those who were interested in seeing us, watch back and, and do that. You'll have another chance. Number two, which is going to be very exciting for you, White Men Can't Jump is we back on the list. We go in Sizzler. We go in Sizzler. I'm telling you. <laughs> and number three, Beethoven. Um, very lovable movie from the night. You're making a face, but who doesn't love that big old mush of a dog? <laughs> It's a very good movie, but if I had to pick between... Charles Grodin, man, the quintessential 90s dad. Oh, yeah, but, but I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I'm afraid now by me poo-pooing this, the, you know, our, our <laughs> listeners are going to be like, oh, that's, this is my month to review it. I got to get Beethoven, yeah, I bet. So if you're listening right now and you're going to vote based off of what you've just heard, you can make Michael's dreams come true with we're going to Sizzla, white man can't jump, or you can crush his hopes with Beethoven and 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 the dog that he because doesn't necessarily want to rewatch right I, now. I'm going to tell you right now and I'm going to come right out of the gate. I don't like Charles Grodin. Don't really? like him. Hate him. Oh, Think my he, God. <laughs> I think he is so overrated and he's so <laughs> blah. He plays the same character, the dopey <laughs> dickhead dad. I'm just like, I don't want to deal with this garbage for three hours or whatever, however long. It feels like three hours for me. I mean, granted, I could watch this movie with my children, but they'll be like 10 minutes in. Where's the dog? I want to watch Blippi instead. Oh. <laughs> anyway. I'm actually really happy to report we're past the Blippi stage. Well, we, are, we are not past the Blippi stage in this house, but oh, I know you guys are going to torture me. Just vote hands down Beethoven. Well, the one thing you do have going for you is we do get a lot of votes from, from obviously the folks that uh, jump onto the poll at the Retro Network. So you might have some – some just kind of people that have no clue what your preference is going to be here. So you'll have to rely on on just where they, they feel like their movie interests are going in the next month. <laughs> I have to also trust that you'll not lead them to torture no, me. I'm, 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 I, again, I'm fine with these. Uh, if, if I had to pick, I would actually right now go with White Men Can't Jump for the reason being that I don't really have interest in Basic Instinct. 
and I've seen Beethoven a billion times, so I'd actually personally like to rewatch White Man Can't Jump. Fingers crossed. We'll we'll see where it goes. (laughs) And then in in two weeks, I've got a lot of newer, new-to-me movies to talk about that, oh boy, I got some (laughs) thoughts, folks. I got some thoughts about some movies next week. So Nice. Anyway, this was a lot of fun. Thank you all for tuning in. I hope you were able to watch it before you listen to our review. And uh, we'll see you in two weeks. Pete, where can they find us? You can find us on Box Office, T-H-I-R-T-Y on Instagram or Box Office 30 on Facebook and Twitter. And you can also find us, and this is a surprise for you, on the brand spanking new boxoffice30.com. You, you <laughs> fixed the website? Really? I made a completely brand new website. Um, I, I just, uh, I had a little downtime. I wasn't feeling so well last week and I, I kind of sat on my laptop and, and tried to put together a little WordPress site quick. Um, Ooh, look at this. This is yes. some high tech stuff now, here. This is a work in progress. There's definitely some things that are still a little wonky and broken. You might find some links that don't quite go where they should. How dare um, you? Things like that. But, um, if you scroll on down the page, it's got some, our, latest episodes pop up it's got you can meet the hosts <laughs> you know it's got all sorts of good stuff so um this will be something i know about myself now <laughs> i i that's one of the things that's broken right now you can click on our links but they don't go to anything they just go to like Bonk. a dead page so uh I, i'm gonna see if i can probably even deactivate that link because i don't necessarily need to write a bio but um this will be a really great resource as michael always says you can come listen to our back catalog of stuff i only have something like the six most recent podcasts on there yet it's something where again work in progress i'll add some more in over time we do have um even though we're this is recording number um episode 43 there's something like 46 podcasts 47 podcasts with some of the bonus materials we've done um so uh it's just something over time when i have some more free time that i'll be adding some more of our back catalog on there but if you'd like to listen to more of our back catalog we are available on apple podcasts google podcasts spotify transistor everywhere that you would possibly download a podcast you can find us (laughs) and if you are a loyal follower of the retro network you can also join the, the retro network's patreon where you can get all kinds of other exclusive content that uh, Jason and Mickey and everybody are creating over there. We have to make our own stuff yet, but there's so much content. It was like cheap. I looked at it. It was like $1 a month or like something like $5. Yeah, no, the, the, the basic tier. intro um, subscriptions a dollar. So uh, that's out there. And then they, you get some more features and different things as it, as it goes up from there. So yeah. um, lots of great content for not so much uh, dent in your yeah. wallet every month <laughs> 12 bucks a year for like a ton of exclusive content that's kind of cool but yeah this website looks beautiful dude i'm i'm very impressed i'm very proud to, to say that we have a legit looking website right now this is, this is cool <laughs> i dig it thank you yeah it's coming together it's taking a little time but uh it's uh it's you there got, <laughs> you've, you've even got an easy link to our t public store so it's actually easier I, I do, yes. So you can you can pop over and buy a uh, box office thirty shirt or hoodie or things like that. I didn't, unlike last time, fulfill my promise of going in and seeing if there was any new merchandise that I could add to it. But I will at some point. And I also 
plan on at some point adding something other than just our logo to it, but I got to figure out exactly what that is. So in the meantime, uh, there's some pretty cool stuff with at least our logo on it there. Yeah, I dig it. I definitely dig it. I like it. Very cool. I got to buy some stickers from, from our tea Public store. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so that's going to do it for us for this week. Uh, we will be posting the poll in the coming days, so please vote on that. We always enjoy our, our listener feedback on the poll. Otherwise, we will see you in two weeks. Bye, everybody. Bye. The Utes. <laughs> this has been a presentation of the Retro Network.